Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to another edition of Airlines Confidential, where we talk about airlines, but where we're anything but confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and I'm here every week to play straight man to Ben Baldanza. Hey, Chris, and hello to all of our listeners. I'm excited to talk to our guest today, David Short, the most recent U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Transportation. But first, Chris, let's cover off a few news items. Thanks, Ben. Here we go. Let's try our lightning round of news so we can get more time with David. First up, what's up with all the airline outages? or at least the press coverage of all the outages. In the U.S., Southwest, Delta, United, and American all experienced varying degrees of outages last week. Virgin Australia, too. Was all the media attention the product of a slow news day, or was this more significant? It's a great question. I hope it was slow news day. You know, we had the hacking that shut down the pipeline, which made us all pay higher gas prices for a week or so or have gas shortages. So I think the media is sensitized now to what can go wrong with IT. Cybersecurity has everybody worried as who can hack into what. So I think when you see stories of a res system going down and grounding Southwest flights or some other things, it brings up the, wow, are we in this world where these things can go wrong. And yet, when I look at each of the things that happen, they don't seem to me to be hacks. They don't seem to be related in the sense of there's this black cloud flying around airline IT systems. So I really think it's sort of things like this happen in the airline industry. They affect things, airline operations once in a while, but the industry and the media is heightened to sort of cybersecurity risk right now. And I think that's why there's more media coverage of it. That's my sense. Yeah. And it looked like the airline outages were linked to some big banking outages as well. And a provider, I'm going to say this wrong, Akame or Akame was a content provider that that was the source of the outages. So it wasn't kind of the typical Sabre or Amadeus outage, but uh, some other technology partner. Next up, Ben, did you see this item about Cathay Pacific working with Airbus to certify single-engine pilot cockpits on the A350 long-haul flying by supposedly 2025? That's very early to me, 2025, to have a single pilot cockpit, especially on a long-haul airplane. I think it's interesting. You know, when you talk to Airbus and Boeing, they will openly tell you that one of the next step function improvements of airplane technology would be to be able to allow the plane to fly with a single pilot in the cockpit. Now, because the plane can do that, that doesn't mean that airlines, customers, or anyone would 
would want that to happen. I mean, the plane could realistically fly with a single altimeter, and yet airplanes have multiple for redundancy and things like that. So by saying the plane can fly with one pilot doesn't mean that CAFE or Airbus or anyone wants there to only be one pilot. But there are issues here that I think are really interesting. Very long-haul flights have more redundancy than short-haul flights. So if an airline is ever going to truly launch a flight with only one pilot, I would think they would start that on short-haul flights before long-haul flights. But one of the things that's true about long-haul flights is airlines use what are called augmented crews, and many of our listeners know what that is, where even though there might be two air pilots in the cockpit at any point, there are other pilots on the plane who might be resting while two of them are flying because for very long flights, a pilot can't fly more than eight hours in a 24-hour period. So pilots rest, essentially replace pilots who were flying while they go and rest. It's possible that Cathay's goal here is to reduce the total number of pilots they'd have on the plane, not to one, but reduce it to maybe two or three instead of four or five, so that maybe at some points in the flight, probably not at takeoff, probably not in landing. There could be some periods of flight where there could be a single pilot in the cockpit at that time while others are resting. And that might make the total augmented crew complement on long flights more efficient. That's my guess is what they're hoping to get by 2025. Not necessarily that they're expecting airplanes all over the world are going to fly with just one person in the cockpit. Yeah, I had the same thought uh, when I read this was kind of like, I went to that same place as well with regard to the augmented crew and could you just reduce the manpower on the aircraft without impacting safety? Well, Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. And a reminder that there's a special offer for Airlines Confidential listeners through July 1st. Visit clearme.com and you'll receive two months free, including for up to three of your family members. Just use promo code Airlines Confidential. That's clearme.com, promo code Airlines Confidential. Finally, Ben, on the news front, uh, a recent analysis of the frequent flyer programs of the major U.S. carriers concluded that reward program liabilities grew almost 12% last year to $27.5 billion. So even though passengers weren't racking up miles in the air while flying, they were doing so on the ground, shopping on Amazon and ordering DoorDash meals every night with their credit cards. This is in combination with carriers leveraging their frequent flyer programs for capital last year, including raising billions of dollars by pre-selling miles to their banking partners. Ben, what do you think airline loyalty program and finance execs are thinking about this summer and beyond? Chris, I think this is a fabulous story and one that we're going to probably have to talk about a few more times over the next six to 12 months, because I think the loyalty space is changing in a lot of interesting ways. You're right. People continue to rack up miles by buying things and all the ways that these programs have made it possible to earn points in these programs from things other than flying. While at the same time, people weren't flying and weren't relieving that liability by getting their upgrade or taking free trips and things like that. What this all says to me, Chris, is that 
there's going to be a repricing in most airlines loyalty programs. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The price of things in those programs, meaning how expensive is it point-wise or mileage-wise to get an upgrade or to get a free trip or things like that, is somewhat a function of how the miles or points are earned in the first place and how the airline makes money when they issue the miles. Do they make money because you're buying tickets on them to fly or because they sell them to a bank or whatever? If people are earning more miles from the credit card or more miles from spending not on the airline where all those miles are paid for from the bank, that might make it cheaper for airlines to say, go ahead and take a free trip because I've been paid a lot for this. On the other hand, if people are flying less and therefore earning points less often through their business travel, and if business travel doesn't all return, that could be a real risk, I could see over time that the prices to buy things in these programs like free trips and upgrades could go up because if people aren't earning at the rate they used to, they're probably not going to be able to use the points at the rate they used to. That's a long answer to the question, but I expect there's already been some changes in loyalty programs, certainly at Spirit and at Southwest, they've changed some already. And I expect when airlines start to figure out what's really going to happen to business travel, then they'll start thinking, what does this mean for how our programs in the loyalty space are priced? Well, I used to say when I was in the business and talking to reporters about frequent flyer programs, and of course that was 15 plus years ago, but these programs are not your retirement funds. Spend them. <laughs> Don't hoard them. A lot of consumers do hoard them, waiting for the right moment. But they're really meant to be spent. They're meant to you know, generate loyalty and to keep coming back. But people really haven't changed that basic behavior of holding on to them, which is why the liability is growing. That's right, Chris. And it's that liability is something that airlines hold on their balance sheets. It's one reason that a number of airlines let the miles expire at some point, too, to help put some control around that. Well, we'll be right back with our guest, David Short. But first, a reminder that TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds and thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and only pay for what was consumed, which means better operations and true savings to the organization that employs them. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the show David Short, the most recent acting undersecretary of transportation for policy, the number three position at the Department of Transportation. David, first off, tell our listeners a little about yourself and specifically, what roles did you play at the DOT and how was that for you? Uh, sure. Well, thanks very much, Ben, and it's great to be with you and with all the listeners. Uh, so I have been very fortunate in my view. I've spent my entire career in the aviation industry in a variety of roles. I began working with a major law firm in a practice that represented airlines, airports, and certain other aviation-related businesses. From there, I went to the International Air Transport Association, IATA, where I served as director of the legal department based in Geneva, Switzerland. 
From there, I went on to FedEx, where I worked for 15 years on the aviation side of the FedEx business, handling international relations. And after that, most recently, uh, as you mentioned, I served in government, primarily as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Transportation for Aviation and International Affairs. For most of my time in government, I served as the Acting Assistant Secretary for Aviation and International Affairs. And then my final role towards the end of the administration was as the Acting Undersecretary for Policy, as, as you mentioned, the number three position in DOT. So it's been a very rewarding career. I feel very blessed to have had these opportunities. It seems like one building block led to the next. And now I am on the verge, as of July 1st, I will be joining a bipartisan government affairs firm based in Washington, D.C., the Capitol Hill Consulting Group. So I'm very excited about that. It's one of the leading government affairs firms in Washington. And uh, I look forward to working with my colleagues at that firm to uh, continue to support the aviation industry. So, David, uh, during your tenure at DOT, uh, what were maybe the top three or four issues that you uh, worked on that you're most proud of? My last year in office was certainly consumed with responding to the pandemic. This included things like administering the payroll support program and other aspects of the CARES Act that Congress enacted to keep the airline industry aloft. There was a lot of effort devoted to maintaining the rights for U.S. carriers to continue to serve international markets in the face of travel restrictions proposed by many foreign governments. I'm very proud to say that during the pandemic, the U.S. government never reneged on our commitments under our network of bilateral agreements. Certainly, we adopted certain immigration-based restrictions against non-citizens entering the U.S. from certain countries where the prevalence of the pandemic would pose a risk to public health in the United States, but we never restricted the ability of either U.S. carriers or foreign carriers to exercise their rights as provided in bilateral agreements. Those agreements do not contain a force majeure clause. They do not contain any clause that says traffic rights are suspended when there's a pandemic. And so we in the US lived up to those obligations and we expected our foreign partners to do no less. So a fair amount of effort was devoted to that. Final thing I'll touch on with regard to the pandemic response, we're very proud of having developed a document called the Runway to Recovery, which was issued almost a year ago at the very first days of July 2020. And this was the product of collaboration between my office at the Department of Transportation, our friends at the FAA, experts at the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, Department of Homeland Security and other agencies with an interest in this. In, and the objective was to come up with the best possible guidance to enable the industry to offer travel in a safe way that did not compromise the public health or the health of the passengers and crew working on the aircraft. That was quite an investment of time. I think it was very well worth it. Aside from the pandemic response, I, I was a frequent traveler to Japan during my years at DOT. And one thing we're very proud of is having tripled U.S. carrier access to the preferred Tokyo Haneda Airport. When I came into office, U.S. carriers were limited to six daily flights at Haneda. When I left office, they had 18. The Japanese government increased 
the slots at Haneda by 50. And I'm also pleased to say that of those 50, a total of 24 were dedicated to service to and from the US. The whole rest of the world, including China, Europe, Canada, Australia, were left to scrap over the remaining 26 flights. So I, I think that is a real accomplishment. I'm very proud of the hard work my team put in to make that possible. Another significant achievement, I would say, was concluding a new agreement with the United Kingdom so that when Brexit happened, it was completely unnoticeable with regard to civil aviation. Nobody missed a beat in terms of travel between the US and the UK when Brexit happened. David, that's a terrific background. And I'm sure many of our listeners, without realizing it, have benefited directly from some of the work that you did over the last number of years, especially as it relates to some of the open skies work, access to Japan and more. And on the runway to recovery, that was a terrific document. And I think it really did help airlines and people associated with the space to get a better understanding of how to recover. And I hope you'll agree the industry has followed a number of those guidelines. Let's go back in time for a minute, though, and tell us about your time at FedEx. One of the things that's really impressive about FedEx is that they can get a package to almost anywhere in the world. And to do that with airplanes had to be an amazing task. You have any good stories from your time there and how you made all that happen or how you helped to make all that happen? Absolutely. It was, I, I have to say, I, I'm very grateful to FedEx for a fantastic 15-year run with that iconic global company. Yes, Ben, you're absolutely right. FedEx, at least when I left uh, a few years ago, FedEx was fond of saying they serve 220 countries and territories around the world. I think that number still holds. And uh, a big part of my responsibilities at FedEx was to negotiate the traffic rights that make all that possible. So I, I will admit, though, one thing that made my job a little bit easier is that when FedEx serves a market, this increases that country's global competitiveness. It's not just a zero-sum game where FedEx is taking traffic away from that country's national carrier. It's a case where if FedEx goes in, particularly if they go in with a connecting complex and a real critical mass of service, they're going to greatly enhance that country's role in global supply chains and increase the competitiveness of that country's exports of high value products. So let me give you one example. It was actually my, my very first assignment the day I walked into FedEx in 2003. And I was tasked with negotiating FedEx's way into a country in Central Asia, which did not have a bilateral aviation agreement with the US. So it's, it's a little bit of, uh, uh, it, it's a challenge. I'm not gonna lie, it was a challenge to do that uh, culturally, I had no exposure to Central Asia. I'd been to the to, to the Russian Federation a few times, but uh, never traveled in Central Asia. I didn't speak the Russian language, so it was it was a challenge. And again, keep in mind this was my very first assignment as a new hire at FedEx. So uh, six weeks into the job at FedEx, I was sent on a mission to this country to meet with very senior government officials there to persuade them of why they should allow FedEx 
to set up shop in their country. So as you can imagine, I think all of us try to do a good job with every assignment we have. But since this was my first assignment for FedEx and I was being sent halfway around the world to accomplish it, I really applied the elbow grease and did probably one of the most extensive preparations for any meeting I've ever, I, I mean, I worked for weeks, day and night, preparing for this meeting. And I got over to the meeting and I'm just ready to roll with this, this uh, one of my best presentations ever. And about 30 seconds into it, the senior government official cuts me off and says, Mr. Short, this is a no brainer. Of course, we want FedEx to come to our country. Just tell me what I need to do to make it happen. So that, that was really, it, it was a little bit of a disappointment that I put all that effort into a presentation I didn't get to give. But as they teach you in law school, when the judge says, I've read your brief and I'm inclined to grant you your relief, you shut up and sit down, right? Before you say something that can uh, persuade the judge to reconsider his opinion. So I, uh, I took that advice to heart. I shut up and sat down and I told the government official what they needed to do to make it possible for FedEx to set up shop in that country given the absence of a bilateral agreement with the US. It still took a considerable period of negotiating back and forth, working with the government officials in that country to iron out all the details and make it possible. But uh, that's an example, I would say, of why the role of someone like me doing international affairs for FedEx is perhaps a little bit easier than the role of someone doing that type of work for say a passenger airline. So David, that, uh, switching gears a bit, we've been talking a lot about passenger misbehavior and the recent spate of fines and, and actions taken against uh, some of the transgressors on U.S. airliners. You know, is there more that the DOT can do? Are they doing enough? Are the fines appropriate? You know, what's your thought about all this? Right. Well, I would say the zero tolerance policy, which is actually, I believe, an FAA policy, is the right one. I, I don't think any of us can disagree that we absolutely must have good order and discipline at 30,000 feet. I guess a question that I would have, though, is why are these incidents happening? I don't really know the answer to that, but I, I don't think it's fueled by alcohol because uh, I believe a number of carriers are continuing to not even make alcohol available in the main cabin of their aircraft. What occurs to me might be a causative factor is whether there's enough communication about uh, particularly some changes in the travel practices that happen every day. For example, I believe that not too long ago there were some, uh, was, was some incident at uh, Miami airport where revenue passengers were standing by for a flight and there weren't enough seats to accommodate them. And perhaps uh, some of these passengers did not understand that although the carriers have waived change fees, that doesn't mean you can just disregard the, uh, the confirmed booking you have on a certain flight and show up to standby for another flight at a what may be to you a more desirable departure time. And you can expect absolutely to receive a seat on that flight. So perhaps I, I think the airlines certainly do make that clear that standby means standby. But perhaps to some people who don't travel that often, who may just be uh, grabbed by the headline, change fees have been eliminated. They may not fully understand that. Also on the, the mask wearing, if, if that could be a factor. Uh, obviously, the TSA has decided that masks will continue to be required on all aircraft through, I believe, some date in September. The question is, has it been explained 
to people why this is required for fully vaccinated people when throughout the rest of society, masks really are not generally required any longer. All I'm really trying to say is I don't think many people wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go to the airport today and try to start a fistfight and get myself arrested and maybe get myself banned from traveling by air in the future. I think there must be some misunderstanding, some lack of communication, something that happens to set off these incidents. And if we could figure out what those uh, root causes are and we could address them, then perhaps we could cut down on the incidents of disruptive behavior and on the need to impose fines. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with David Short. But first, a reminder that Pratt & Whitney is the world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Well, David, let's get back to the domestic U.S. again for another issue. Obviously, the U.S. is blessed to have lots of different airlines and lots of different business models going on in a very competitive environment. But do you think the DOT could do more specifically to create competition at really constrained airports in places like New York, Chicago, Atlanta, and more? Does the DOT need to sort of maybe with the new infrastructure bill or something, find ways to get more competition in some of these big places? Ben, I think the the issue at most of those airports is one of slots. I think in your question, you threw in Atlanta, which of course is not slot constrained and it may be uh, facility constrained in terms of gates and that sort of thing, but it's not slot constrained. But the other airports that are difficult to enter, JFK, LaGuardia, Reagan National, O'Hare, and also uh, Newark, Los Angeles, San Francisco, there are to some extent slots or the uh, equivalent of slots that limit the ability of new carriers to enter. Uh, This is something we were very much cognizant of during my time at DOT. And as an example, in our recent disposition of the American Airlines JetBlue Northeast Alliance, we required slot divestitures to enable new entrants to increase service at JFK and Reagan National. Now, You can debate whether the number of slots required to be divested was correct. I think the applicants, American and JetBlue, felt that no slot divestitures were necessary. You have the the have-not carriers that want to offer more competition that felt that the department didn't go far enough in ordering divestitures. So I guess with any good compromise, nobody is completely satisfied. But I will say that uh, based on the expert economic analysis of the career people at DOT, we came up with a number of slots that was appropriate to mitigate the reduction competition that would otherwise occur as a result of allowing that alliance, the American JetBlue Alliance, to go forward. Another example I will refer to is when Southwest, I believe it was in 2019, decided to close its operation at Newark airport. Uh, Southwest had been awarded a number of slots at the time of the, I believe it was the Continental uh, merger with United to enable Southwest to mount competition at Newark to that, to the combined presence of of, um, Continental United. And so with Southwest leaving the Newark market, that competitive impact would no longer be present. 
um, the question that was then presented, not to my office, but to the FAA, because the FAA really is, is under current law, the entity that administers the slot program. The, the questions presented to the FAA was, should they award those slots being returned by Southwest to some other carrier that would introduce competition to United, or should they just let those slots expire because Newark was facing delays. And if you reduce the number of slots, then the theory is the delays should get better. Um, the initial decision of the FAA was to allow the slots to be retired. That decision was challenged in the courts and a decision came down last month from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit reversing the decision of the FAA, saying that was an incorrect decision and remanding for further action. So I think that shows the importance of slots. I, I think that's really uh, the answer to your question, Ben, is what do we need to do? Well, we need to increase capacity at constrained airports so that new entrants, low fare carriers, carriers with new business models and the like can introduce robust competition, which does exist throughout the great majority of the US aviation system. So David, final question. I don't know if you were asked during the transition process, but if you were, or if you were asked now, uh, what would be your single most important piece of advice to give to Secretary Buttigieg? The one word I would say if I had to give one piece of advice is competition. I would urge the secretary and his team to continue to rely on market forces and competition, which for 40 plus years in our domestic market since airline deregulation was enacted in 1978 and for close to 30 years internationally since the open skies policy was introduced in the early 1990s, these policies have well served the traveling and shipping public, carriers, and the aviation workforce. These policies have made possible new business models, uh, such as the ultra low cost carriers. They have led to lower fares for passengers in inflation adjusted dollars, and they've led to more jobs for the aviation labor force. So I think throughout administrations of both policies, deregulation and open skies have served our aviation industry well. And I would encourage this administration and any future administration to continue to follow those policies. David, that's a terrific message to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with the new venture here in Washington. We hope that you can continue to make real positive change for airlines carrying both passengers and goods in the U.S. and the large workforces in those groups. Thank you very much for your time and really insightful comments. Well, thanks so much, Ben and Chris. It's been a real pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, David. Good to talk. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Thanks again to David Short for joining us. And now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, even though my kids say nobody leaves a voicemail anymore. Or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. 
We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. So Ben, our first question is from Kristen Webster from Ottawa, Canada. Guys, as someone who works in the policy government side of the industry, I find your podcast extraordinarily insightful. Wondering if you have any book recommendations for those of us interested in learning more about the industry. I'm usually listening to the show while cycling, so perhaps you could include the list on your website as well. Well, thanks, Kristen. This is a great question, actually. As many of our listeners may know, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of books on the airline industry. And some are very specific around revenue management or how to schedule crews efficiently or how to buy airplanes most efficiently and things like that. But I'm going to make two recommendations for you, Kristen, recognizing that you're not going to want to scour the world. One is around sort of how airlines really work. And the book there is called The Global Airline Industry. It's written by Dr. Peter Bellobaba, who's a professor at MIT. It's a great book, and it's the book that I've found as a single book really covers a lot of the major issues that airlines have to think about. You can find it at Amazon. Because it's a textbook, it's a little bit pricey, but it's not that pricey, and it's the best out there at really knowing what airlines do. The more interesting book that I'll recommend, I think, because it gets to the culture of the industry, is an older book called Hard Landings. And then there was a sequel called Hard Landings 2. And those books, especially the first book, do better than any other book I've read, really explain the emotion, the characters, and the the way labor and management work together, and the real things that have driven a lot of the changes in the airline industry really over the last 40 years. So if you want a really good, you know, almost novel kind of read, read Hard Landings, and then you probably want to read the sequel Hard Landings too. If you want a more academic view of the industry, go to The Global Airline Industry by Peter Bellababa. Those are my two recommendations. We'll think about putting a list of other books on the website if listeners are interested in that, because there are lots of other books. But those are the two I would uh, recommend. Hard to believe Hard Landing has been a, a must read for people in the business for decades now. So That's right. And it's still relevant. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Well, and then, Chris, this question is from Nicole in Phoenix. Guys, you've been talking about the issue of passenger behavior, more like misbehavior. Here's a related question. What happens to someone's frequent flyer miles if they are banned from the airline? Well, Nicole, thanks for the question. The short answer is, if you're banned from an airline, you don't have any frequent flyer miles anymore. If you read the fine print of most programs, the carrier can make a decision to uh, kick you out of a program or eliminate your balance for a variety of reasons. And they've been doing that not all the time, but they've had the right to do that all along. Just not in such a celebrated fashion like we've been seeing with this misbehavior over the past year or so. I, I recall, and Ben, I think you were still at U.S. Airways when we um, banned, I'm not going to use his name, but a, a very high-profile customer who um, actually promoted himself as being a customer service expert and was on the lecture circuit, but in the, in the process of which flying out of Charlotte weekly just humiliated and terrorized airport staff, the club staff, the uh, onboard staff, and uh, we finally had enough. And halfway through a trip, uh, we 
FedExed him a package and said, Mr. X, I don't think we can uh, please you, so please find another airline. We canceled his return flight and zeroed out his uh, chairman's preferred frequent flyer balance. And he was off the airline for about a year until we reached an agreement where he promised to behave. So carriers have always had this right, and they don't like to exercise it because, again, they're in the customer service business. They're not in the business of banning customers, but sometimes they have to use that ability to, to kind of keep things in line. Well, and Chris, that makes the consequence of misbehaving even greater when we combine it with what you said earlier about people still hoarding miles. So I'm sure people aren't thinking about that when they do some crazy things on board, think that not only might I be banned from this airline, but these miles I've been accruing over the last three, five, 10 years are going to go away too. Yep. Well, one more question, Chris, and it's a somewhat related on the topic of passenger behavior. This is from George in Orlando. Hi guys, I'm a regular listener and enjoy the show. Thank you. Wondering what you thought about this legal case brought by Lucas Wall that is making headlines. He's suing President Biden, multiple airlines, the CDC, the TSA, the Orlando airport, and the U.S. DOT, amongst others, claiming that the federal mask mandate violates his rights as he has an anxiety disorder that prohibits him from wearing a mask. So consequently, he says he is stranded at his mother's retirement community here, the villages in Florida. Chris, what would you say to Lucas Wall? <laughs> I've been reading these stories over the weekend. Thanks, George, for the question. First, I, I'm generally not a fan of litigation and these tactics. I certainly respect people's right to sue. Our legal system is based on the ability for access to the legal system. So I guess he can pursue this if he wants. I, I see that uh, Mr. Wall is trying to raise money for his defense fund. He's set up a GoFundMe account of $3,000. So far, as of Sunday, he'd raised 500 I'm really not sure what kind of lawyer you're going to get for $3,000, but uh, that's his goal. I, I, I'm just generally confused by all this. The federal mask guidelines went into effect January of this year, but there were local and airline-specific mask guidelines and policies way before that. I, I, I've got to wonder, like, how long has he been at his mother's? I mean, I would want to get out of the villages, too. No disrespect to somebody who lives there, but if you're not a retiree, you don't want to kind of hang around there. But you know, he didn't sue Amtrak or Greyhound Bus or any other transportation system. There are other ways for him to get back to Washington, D.C., where he lives. He could rent a car. So the fact that the mask guidelines don't allow him to fly if he doesn't want to wear a mask doesn't mean he's trapped there. Uh, it just means he can't fly if he doesn't want to follow the policies. So you know, he can pursue his suit. Let's see how far it goes. But I, I saw that and kind of both chuckled and, like I said, scratched my head. You know, I, I had the exact same reaction. I was thinking, well, the car that you would use to drive to Orlando or wherever you'd fly from can doesn't have to go there. And there are plenty of roads that go out of the villages. So <laughs> you're, yeah. you're not really stuck. Yeah, I mean, he had, to, he had to get there wearing a mask, I would think. So I don't know why he can't get home where, not wearing a mask. But That's right. 
Well, Finer Wine is next, and it's brought to you by the Seabury Capital Group, the specialty finance and investment banking firm advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Chris, this finer wine is from Elizabeth in Mifflinburg, Pennsylvania. I had a departing flight scheduled for May 19th that I needed to cancel due to unforeseen circumstances. This would have been my first time flying in over eight years. I was told the only way to get my money back was to get a credit when I told them I wouldn't be able to use the credit because I never fly and I don't know when I would use the credit. I was told I would need to provide documentation proving the events I said actually happened That was a horrible experience, and I wouldn't ever recommend using this airline. Chris, what would you tell Elizabeth who hasn't flown in eight years? First, Elizabeth, I'm sorry this is a whine. I I think airlines are seeing a lot of people who haven't flown in a long time back on airplanes, and so they may not be familiar with the policies. But again, her decision that she isn't going to fly in the future isn't necessarily the airline's problem. I think in this case, she was writing about Frontier. They did offer her a credit, a full credit for her her email to us. So it wasn't like she was out the money. And her decision that she wasn't going to fly again in the future anytime soon is not necessarily Frontier's problem to resolve. I mean, imagine if every customer who wanted a their money back just simply said, I have no plans to fly again for the next 10 years. I want my money back. How do you sort that out? So I can see her frustration, but this is a whine in the context of airline ticketing policies and the fact that they they didn't keep her money. It wasn't non-refundable. They were prepared to give her a full credit. So as we get ready to shut things down, I want to give my shout out this week to Robert Sumwalt, who retired last week as chair of the National Transportation Safety Board. Ben, if you recall, Robert is a former colleague of both of ours from U.S. Airways days and was an outstanding airman and pilot and flight leader and took that leadership to the NTSB. So proud of you, Robert, and happy retirement. Congratulations, Robert. That's a great shout out, Chris. My shout out goes to the state of Florida and Governor Ron DeSantis for taking action to try to get the cruise lines back into Florida. Now, I'm not saying that what they did is perfect or what they did is going to work for the cruise lines perfectly, but I've found that since the pandemic, there are two types of leaders, those that are comfortable letting things stay closed and those who try to make things happen. And so my shout out goes to Florida for trying to help a real important industry in that state. And again, it may not be perfect, but action when things like this happen is always better than inaction. And so I applaud a state that would say we're going to help our local industry. And with that, uh, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Have a good week. And for all of you fathers out there, I hope you had a great Father's Day. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.